Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. In today's beautiful and personal episode of The Protagonistas, I chat with Korean-American writer and seminary student Sarah Williams about her experiences as a transracial adoptee. Sarah is vulnerable about her experiences, and her doing so is such a precious gift for all of us. So in the beginning of the episode, I asked Sarah about a reflection she wrote about her Uma, or her mother, which she posted on her social media page. It has to do with a recurring dream Sarah used to have as a child. Now, I thought I'd read a piece of this post for some context, which is sort of the catalyst for the rest of the conversation. In her post, Sarah writes, As a child, I used to have this dream that one day you came back for me and took me back to South Korea. Our reunion was filled with you taking my face in your hands, smoothing your hands through my hair, running your hands over my cheeks as if memorizing my features. Because the last time you held me was the day I was born, before giving me a kiss on my forehead and promising to never let me go again, because you were my Uma. Sarah continues, I remember always waking up from this dream with tears in my eyes because of the impossibility of this conjuring. But in that dream space, my subconscious allowed me to work out and process the trauma that is adoption because adoption usually culminates with a family being separated so another can be built. In my dreams, layers of loss typically covered and overshadowed were released and I was able to unleash the power of my imagination and that is where I first met you. My first Uma. In my dreams, Uma, you and I were both crying. Crying and holding onto one another deeply and desperately, knowing that the time we had together was all too short and that we could have spent a lifetime together. Together in the extraordinary and mundane moments of life. Because we had one another, and that was all that mattered. Uma, you are never far from my heart or mind. As I mentioned, this beautiful reflection is a catalyst to our conversation about what it means to hold things in tension to engage in life-giving resistance, to come out of the fog. And through our conversation, we also chat about the power and beauty of always being in process. Lastly, Sarah shares some incredible insight about adoptee-centered biblical interpretations, which is so illuminating and life-giving and so necessary for us to wrestle with as we engage with the Bible. Whew, this episode is jam-packed and I hope you enjoy it and are as moved as I was as you listen to it and learn from Sarah. And welcome to The Protagonistas. So today I am chatting with Sarah Williams, which I am super excited to talk about or to talk to Sarah. I've really enjoyed following you on social media and I feel like I've learned so much um, just from your experiences and your vulnerability and how much that 
you know, how much you're willing to share and um, work through and how I love, you know, when, when many of us who have been in complicated spaces um, heal out loud. That's what I like to call it. And I feel like that's something that um, I've, you know, seen in your work. And so, yeah. So if you want to introduce yourself and talk to us about your spiritual background. Of course, of course. So hi, everyone listening in the future. My name is Sarah Williams, my pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a transnational Korean American adoptee. So that means I was adopted from South Korea and raised in the US, specifically California. I am currently in seminary doing research, if you will, or starting to do research at the intersection of um, family ethics, specifically adoption ethics um, and biblical interpretation and theology. So that's a little bit, a little bit about me um, and how Kat and I got connected. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. I love chatting with folks who um, have also been through the seminary process um, and seminary journey because it is certainly, uh, I know in my seminary career, I had many existential crises. And so <laughs> I'm sure you may have been there or not. Um, so tell me, you, um, you're, so obviously you're currently in seminary, meaning that you are within the theological, you know, world, you're thinking theological thoughts. And how did you get there? Were you raised in the church or just, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about your journey of how you decided to become a theologian, essentially. For sure, for sure. So I grew up in a pretty like theologically conservative Christian home, I would say. Um, so typical like gender roles and um, constructions of like who God is and what we are, how we are called to live into our baptismal covenants, if you will. And so that was kind of my, and that was like the community we were surrounded by. And so there wasn't really a lot of theological diversity, I would say, until I really got into undergrad. And then for my undergrad, I went um, to a private Christian school in Southern California and majored in biblical studies. And that was when I um, was exposed to the breadth, if you will, of the spectrum of what you, of um, the things people are thinking and how in different ways faith could um, empower a more life-giving and liberating hermeneutical, like hermeneutic, if you will. So that was kind of my experience um, the last couple of years in undergrad. And then with, you probably know this, but like with an undergrad in biblical studies, you can't really, not a lot of options out there. And kind of a master's is kind of the like the vocational degree most people are looking for. So I knew off the bat that I wanted to pursue my master's. And when my professors actually recommended that I look into Drew because I was doing this stereotypical like seminary hunt of looking at, you know, Candler, Vanderbilt, Union, kind of these big names, if you will, in the theological world. And Drew is kind of this um, dovetail, if you will. But once I found it, um, I, I really fell into alignment with its goals um, and all that it professes to be or and tries to live into to the best because no institution is perfect. But so I'm out here in New Jersey in my second year. Um, well, just finished my second year. So looking to hopefully maybe do an advanced master's, but eventually a PhD. So it's kind of about me. Awesome. That's great. 
Um, so you said that you grew up in a pretty theologically conservative space. And would you say you're there now? Or what has been sort of your transition to uh, where you're at now theologically or spiritually? Yeah, so I would definitely say um, I no longer uh, really resonate with the types of theological constructions in Christian, like the type of Christian ethics my um, home community does anymore. And so I think through being exposed to like, I guess, a more liberal or progressive um, understanding of who God is and like the role of the church and society and how all of these interweave and connect and commune with one another, it's definitely become more of a, just a generally um, life-giving and affirming articulation of my own faith values, if you will. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. So I did want to talk, you mentioned about how you're sort of studying at the intersection of adoptee-centered biblical narratives and things like that, which I think is um, just so interesting and so needed and so beautiful. Recently on your social media, you shared a beautiful reflection about your Uma, um, about a dream you used to have as a child of your reunion. So can you talk to us a little bit about your adoption journey, this dream and what it brings up in you? Yeah, so within um, adoption studies, as like a field of study, there's this um, phenomenon called phantom lives. Which I think in, it's like a rearticulation of things that like are existing in other fields, if you will, but with a specific focus on like adopted persons, like moral formation and how we negotiate belonging and social deaths, if you will, and that kind of that transportation and like, um, grafting on into like a new country, home, um, way of being and living, etc. And so in my reflection, I talked about um, this dream I, I always used to have as a child of just like one articulation of how I as a young individual growing up um, in white spaces, not a lot of like reflection of what it means, of what it meant to be Korean and how to even negotiate difference because it was a pretty homogenous space I would say um, I had this dream of reunion of my birth mom if you will like realizing that like in my articulation as like a seven-year-old like adoption was a quote-unquote like her decision um, was a mistake if you will and that she really did have the resources to care for me um, and so in this dream, it's like this reunion where it is, we are hugging and doing the things that parents and children do, like, you know, in those bonding moments where like, you're gazing into each other's eyes, you're holding each other close. And so for me, that like that dream signifies, like, even though I didn't realize it, my, my own embodied understanding and articulation of this is a construct, um, that this is not the quote-unquote norm of, you know, VC typical how for my like seven-year-old self, how babies are born, if you will. Or, you know, I didn't see a lot of um, other adoptees. So I didn't realize how common it actually is. Um, and so for me, it was trying to make sense of as a young person, like holding space for myself as I navigated like the trauma that is like family separation to use that language um, and negotiating what it means to also be able to hold space for her and that okayness that that is 
because I think there can be a lot of shame sometimes of like, because of how the narrative adoption is constructed of like, it is this great thing and it's like sunshine and rainbows and you are so lucky type of a narrative that gets um, typically, again, like the, the world of adoption is changing, but um, back like 20 years ago, that was the narrative, if you will. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of like movement to have a different articulation. And so that, that dream signifies to me that specifically adoptees, um, we do have our own, our own articulations from a young age and it's how do we create the conditions to, to where more of those can be shared and part of the conversations that parents and children are having. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so, yeah, it's complicated, but I think in a necessary way that it needs to be complicated, right? The way life is. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful that you have been wrestling with that for obviously just the entire adoptee community, um, that you can be a voice in that sense. So along the lines of what you were sharing. So at the end of the post that you say, you kind of do like a little side note and you say, there is room in my articulation of adoption to hold space for both my moms. Writing about one does not negate my relationship with the other. I know you kind of touched on this just now, um, you know, kind of holding that both space, but can you share a little bit more about this, right? Like how you hold both of those truths within your yourself um yeah and and what that process is like for you yeah so I think like where I'm at now none of it has been like a picture perfect like straight and narrow path um but I think a big part of like my own um there's this term within like adoption communities called coming out of the fog and so this like idea that like adoptees are experiencing these unnatural uh, this unnatural narrative if you will but like aren't able to recognize it um but more recent and so like therefore the process of being able to like sit with and be like oh wait like what does it mean how do I as an adult like perhaps negotiate loss and belonging and so that journey that some of us give ourselves permission to go on like that's what coming out of fog signifies but then more recently for me like part of my work has been like naming like the like adding on to this like phrase of like coming out of coming out of the fog of white supremacy. So I think it's really white supremacy that creates that created this narrative um, and continues to profit transnationally on this construction um, that is not life-giving specifically for ad- adoptees and our ability to um, have our own mor- moral articulations of our own humanity and the way of our subjectivity has been constructed. And so I think part of like this coming out of the fog of white supremacy has been able to like realize like the lie of um, this construction of the social death of, oh, Sarah, like you were orphaned and then you were adopted. Um, but that seamless, that, that seamless transition isn't so seamless because many adoptees in our files, it says, um, well, I'll just speak from like my experience, but in my file specifically, it says that my parents actually deeply and dearly loved me and but just didn't have economic means to care for me. And so adoption, because of the way it was like constructed after the Korean War, that was an option given to them. And so to be able to hold space for both my moms, I think really um, speaks back into like the powers that would, the powers that be that, um, 
really just continue, are continuing to profit off of a very simplistic narrative of adoption. Yeah, um, that's so good. I, I did read that you had mentioned something about, you know, the the aspect of war, the aspect of what was happening, you know, between, you know, in the Korean War, all of these things are all part of the narrative, right? It wasn't just uh, like we know when it comes to white supremacy or when it comes to systemic injustice, they aren't isolated things. Um, mm-hmm. They all kind of fit together. Um, and so, yeah, so the fact that you're wrestling with that, I think adds, again, just a lot more complexity to it. Um, I, I was so interested how you talked about, you know, this idea of coming out of the fog and then coming out of the fog of white supremacy. Um, essentially, you know, there are two different things. In your experience, obviously, they are intertwined. Do you see them or can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between the two? Um, do you see them as sort of speaking in and through one another? Or have they been two different experiences for you? Um, because as a Korean uh, woman, you know, there are so many intersections. Um, as a Korean adoptee woman, there are so many intersections that you are navigating. And so how has that, had that journey been of A, coming out of the fog, and then B, coming out of the fog of white supremacy? And how do they kind of flow in and through each other and speak to, to each other? Yeah, so like you're saying, the kind of um, my journey of understanding um, my racial identity as a Korean American really began through exposure in undergrad to various communities and like not just theological diversity, but the actual like ethnic and racial diversity and kind of the way various individuals were articulating themselves and talking about like ancestors and what it means to be like black in America or, or Chinese in America, all these things like disabled, et cetera. Um, and so for me, part of, so it's kind of funny, but so I would say only within the last couple of years have I begun to um, come out of the fog for um, in the specific adoptee related sense. I think for me, it was much easier um, to like realize like white supremacy as like this like system that like devalues human beings etc and in in that construction like um, does not value me except as a Korean American woman and like the things I have to say and so it took me a while to actually begin to think about adoption like in as a field of study as something that can help like connect theory and um, in, embodied experience um, in specific ways that I was looking for. And so eventually they began to flow in between and of one another, but actually like my first semester of seminary, I took this intercultural ethics course with this ethicist named Tracy West. And in her syllabi, there was like a section on uh, transnational adoption, specifically Korean adoption. And so that, was my first experience of seeing like the two intertwined in very specific ways. Um, so yeah. Yeah, um, that's so interesting how the adoptee journey for you almost flowed from the white supremacy journey. Um, but again, it makes sense in your situation, considering the history of 
our country, the history of South Korea, the history, um, you know, again, like I said, all of it is intertwined. It kind of all goes together. This reminds me of, you know, the recent Atlanta shootings, right? And you had these, you had white supremacy and you had Christian nationalism and you had patriarchy and you had all of these um, colonial, you know, constructs almost, you know, coming together and clashing. And so sometimes it is hard to tease them apart, right? But as we tease them apart, um, we can see how they connect and how they affect us in so many different ways. So speaking on white supremacy, you you said something that I thought was just really beautiful. And I would love for you to just elaborate on this. Um, you said white supremacy thrives off of isolation and would have us shun belonging in favor of pursuing perfection, neat labels, and binaries as a means of control over BIPOC bodies. Um, I thought that was such a great articulation of what white supremacy thrives off of and what it you know, favors, of course. And so can you say more about how you resist white supremacy in relation to these things, to what you mentioned, right? Isolation, perfectionism, binaries, um, and how your you know, unique intersections, how you resist that? Yeah, so... Yeah, I think um, growing up, even though like my, I, I, I think I have to like put a little disclaimer in that. I think um, because of, I think because of the intimacy of adoption, it can, um, for like listeners, like listening can be, it can be an easy jump to say like, oh, well, you know, you're just one adoptee who had like a really like interesting experience and not all adoptees, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, or they can make the jump of, and then start to like um, make claims on adoptive parents that aren't even my own articulations, but they can go on that gamut of placing individual blame on specific parents when that's actually, I think what white supremacy does is, is it makes it individualistic. And so you're unable to see the systems that intersect and are actually creating the conditions, if you will. But um, I just wanna disclaim that because I think even though my parents like participated in this construction of adoption, I think to the best of their abilities, they did the best that they could and didn't have the resources like, like we do now, like media being connected and being able to like interact with various individuals. Um, but I would say that growing up, I, w I was racialized as white. And so because um, I did not have the ability to articulate myself as Korean American. I was just what my like, family was and that's white. And I think that's actually, I think that just speaks to like the ways like white racial identity formation is just seen as the norm. And so to, to speak to the, the, the aspect of isolation, um, I grew up very like isolated um, from like Korean American communities. And so wasn't able to negotiate my own um, racial identity. And so belonging has been um, something I've always struggled with, if you will, because in some sense I can negotiate belonging in any space I'm in because of my ability to mask, if you will, and to like know how to behave in like certain spaces that 
afford me belonging because of like the privilege of growing up in predominantly white spaces that gave me access to the language and like the ways to embody myself in ways that made people feel safe and comfortable. And so I think also as I've been on this journey of like coming out of the fog and coming out of the fog of white supremacy, like the urge to have this like narrative arc of like, and so Sarah was here and now she's on this journey and like there is this end, a destination in sight, which I think, I think for me, I, I've had to learn that that chase is not life-giving. It's gonna keep me on this trail, always looking um, for the next thing to continually to perfect myself in the image of like white supremacy that like continues to always position refinement and always something else to do. Um, and even if like, we don't articulate it as like a white body behind that image of our goal, I think it's like this phantasmic like chase that distracts us quite honestly from like actually being able to like be in community and do the work and be so show up in solidarity with one another because again it's very individualistic um and i think within the last couple of years you've seen like the power of like being in community and like what um solidarity looks like together instead of being isolated so that's kind of like um a riff off of that articulation yeah that's so good i love sort of that image of a non-linear, you know, essentially process of belonging or, you know, process of healing, um, because it's true, you know, I always think of it that, and I think that even speaks to the idea of, of binaries, and that speaks to the idea of, um, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, perfection and neat labels, like things are supposed to, are supposed to, I say that in quotation marks, you know, look a certain way and, and you know, arrive at a specific end goal. Um, but I think, you know, the idea of decolonizing that way of thinking, um, I, I like to think of just being fully present in whatever space you are in that moment. Um, and it's not going to look linear or straightforward. It's going to look messy, right? And complicated as life is. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Hey, everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, this podcast has been important for so many listeners. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas. Um, so I'm going to quote another, I'm going to quote you again, <laughs> and then I would love for you to elaborate a little bit on it. So you say, perhaps as adoptees, part of our own resistance ethics are forged and cultivated in these moments of being in liminal spaces. And I think this speaks to a little bit of what you were just saying, right? 
that in our refusal to forget and make choices to speak that honor both moms, our communities are better for it because it allows for new constructions of kinship to emerge that disrupt multiple dominant transnational narratives of family and kinship. So I would love to hear about your process of refusing to forget and making choices to speak up that honor your liminal space. When did that start for you and how has it developed? Um, as you mentioned, these are not norms within adoptee communities or peoples. They are counter to the cultural narratives that exist about adoption. So can you tell us about your journey of living, you know, quote unquote, counterculturally, if you will, as an adoptee? Yeah, so I would say, again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it's only been within the last couple of years that have I been able to connect embodied wisdom, if you will, to like theory and so that's that interchange and being able to think and move between like mind, body, spirit has really allowed me to connect various thoughts that allow me to live into my own agency, if you will, as a human being, but then also as an adoptee. So I think often for adoptees, we're given narratives. And so like the, the narrative of like, oh, you know, your birth parents did X, Y, and Z, or we adopted you. And so specifically within theological interpretations that we are given within communities, it can feel like there's not a lot of ways we can resist or even negotiate how to articulate those like inner like pangs and like uneasy, queasy feelings we feel as we are like handed these narratives, if you will. And so I think one of the ways specifically that I'm interested in like studying and thinking about is resistance because I don't think, I think a lot of um, research has been done that like describes like historically what has happened and what is continuing, continuing to happen, but isn't focused or because of just the way the field of study is like continuing to blossom and evolve. Um, not a lot has been focused on like adoptee agency and like how we actually like formulate for me like a Christian resistance ethics um, and so I think part of the ways I think that adoptees internally begin to negotiate and come into the fullness of our humanity if you will is by beginning to speak back because I think specifically if you want to talk about like racialization of Asian children within white families a lot of um, typical articulations can racialize us as silent, even if it's like not explicit. Um, it can be a lot of, um, because if we're gonna say that in white space, like for like, like go back 20 years talking about like racial formation and identity construction, um, the ways like whiteness has not had to have those conversations. And so white folks who do um, adopt transnationally, do um, view their children as white, but because of like that Asian or like specifically for me, that Asian body, what does that mean then to have that like transnational, like racist articulation of Asian like women specifically as silent and submissive to be like bubbling underneath the surface as we begin to question as young children, oh, like, well, what if, you know, adoption isn't necessarily a quote unquote good thing? What if there is another way like, or even just ask, 
questions of like, well, why? Um, I think white supremacy like thrives off of this culture of silence, which unfortunately for Asian bodies, Asian female bodies can be tricky within these spaces. And so part of our own like forging, if you will, is by beginning to articulate that liminal space. So I think it's assumed that it is this great construct that um, really does a disservice to the complexity. And so I think in our bodies, adoptees know how complex it is, but haven't been able to, or been given the space or the condi conditions created to be able to speak back, talk, et cetera. Right. Um, yeah, I think that that is uh, so good. I mean, it starts with, you know, like you said, being able to assume your agency and yeah, ask why, right? I think so much of this quote unquote disruption, this necessary disruption um, begins with that question. Um, and that I think, you know, is the first step toward healing in many ways or for, first step toward liberation in many spaces. Um, you mentioned Christian resistance ethics, and I, I love how you mention it in relation to your, um, you know, your intersections and your social location. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, just that Christian resistance ethics, sort of what you're embracing within that and how you're thinking through that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'll probably hopefully always be in process of continually um, being better I use that word tentatively, um, more constructive perhaps of being in solidarity with other communities. But I think, yeah, I'm, I'm not interested, I guess, in just doing biblical studies or theology or ethics for the sake of doing it. I really think and view it as like a form of like activism, if you will. And I mean, I think, we could probably like log off this Zoom call and have many conversations of the way, of the ways in which the, the academic spaces are very harmful and like often like don't cultivate resistance in many ways. And so I think I'm interested, yeah, in articulations, um, musings, if you will, to happen in communities on the ground to think about how we can live into our values that we say we do. Um, or and reveal the ways that Christianity tentatively can be life-giving and liberating and a, a source for spiritual renewal and communal coalition building and solidarity. Um, and I, I think specifically within adoptee communities, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, so good. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the Bible, because we know that, you know, adoptee language is prevalent in the Bible. And so I'm curious how we can engage in adoptee-centered biblical interpretations that honor adoptees, and if you can give us some examples. Yeah, so I think my first, like growing up, one of my, the first articulations of seeing the intersection of the Bible and adoption at play was this um, church members articulation to me that I must be so grateful because now I'm saved. Um, wow. And so perhaps if I hadn't been adopted, you know, in their theological constructs, like I would probably not have been exposed to Christianity and so would probably end up in hell. 
to like I'm get so sorry me. for that yeah <sighs> yeah uh, and so I think that's like that reveals like the way there's there's this culture of adoption that is and family that is um, prevalent in the bible that but that gets used in harmful ways um that has consequences and so I think I've always been because of my life thinking about like an ethical like terms like consequences and obligations so what are the consequences of not having you know adoptee centered biblical interpretations and only interpretations that center like white supremacy and like savioristic tendencies that are then deployed on days when churches say and now we should adopt transnationally because god wants us to save the children from insert any country even the u.s and so because of that experience of like understanding the the consequences of how biblical interpretations can be used. I was like, okay, so what's the, what's the opposite end? Like how can we, how do I find, how do I excavate these biblical interpretations? And so I think it's like be there there, but also it's um, not creating this like single narrative of, because I think, Adoption is so nuanced and like the various like geopolitical circumstances that are created can create so many like articulations of like adoptee center, center biblical interpretations that are like liberating. But specifically um, for me, like two of the stories that I just like love and adore and hold so dear um, are Moses' story as well as Esther, like um, two stories in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually where I get my like username on um, Instagram and adoptee talks back because in my articulation as a transnational adoptee, like obviously adoption looks differently from like the text to now. But as I was just um, flipping through the text, looking for like stories that even look like somewhat close, I landed on these two because I think um, both have interesting constructions of kinship that resemble adoption. And I think give adoptees a chance to see what it looks like to begin to speak, because obviously with Moses, there's part of his character development is like the text says that um, when he has that encounter with the Lord, if you will, what part of his articulation is, well, what about me? Like, why not someone else? Like, I, I can't speak. I don't know, like, who's going to listen to me? And so God gets, like, frustrated and is like, well, your brother Aaron will go with you. But as we see, like, the text progress in this story, we see this beautiful character arc of Moses coming into his agency, if you will, um, and towards the end of his life, have, or having this, like, encounter with God on the mountain when God is giving Moses, like, the commandments. And then, you know, we see like in like chapter 30 or something, we see the Lord like telling Moses to go back down because the people are being, have created this false God, if you will. And like the Lord or Yahweh being prepared to like smite them and like destroy them. And so we see this like really beautiful articulation of like Moses telling God, like talking back, if you will, of, like, no. God, like, remember your promises to your people. Remember what you said and all that you professed to them. And really, I think from being speechless to coming into speech in ways that are powerful and that 
save an entire community and legacy and generation if things speak to the power of the potential I see for um, adoptees, for Christian adoptees who are who have been given or who have been rendered silent by predominantly like savioristic narratives, narratives of adoption that just have us um, silent as products or as recipients of this grace. So that's Moses um, and then Esther, similar before to Esther you, arc. Before you get into Esther, I just want to say that was so good. I literally have goosebumps. I had, I don't think I've ever fully seen that arc like that where, yeah, in the beginning, and I'm actually reading through the story of Moses right now. So I had just read about, he's like, what do you mean? Like, why send someone else? Um, but I mean, you're so right. And I think that that's so rich that there is this, like, he doesn't want to, you know, talk to, he doesn't want to talk. He's not confident in that. He's not whatever. And then at the end, he ends up not just talking back, but talking back to God and, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of saying like, sort of writing that wrong. So thank you. That was beautiful. Um, now, yes. Tell us about Esther. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think like in similar ways, I think between like Moses and Esther seeing how in different ways, like talking back saves lives and is a necessity. And it's part of our formation as Christians, if you, uh, if you will, as we're reading these texts, we always see um, the moral necessity of like responding to and within communities in ways that are life-giving, that challenge and disrupt, that save lives, if you will. And so that's what I also see Esther doing in different ways as she, um, I mean, the text just says she's adopted, like point blank, but as she's adopted by Mordecai, you see, I think more explicitly, like the ways like displacement works, um, and how Esther, as a mode of survival, is at first silent. Also, I would say, um, like her story, I think also reveals the wisdom if that is like within that story that talks about how ver- how various communities, um, very like minoritized or ma- marginalized communities have to be creative in our resistance to survive, not just ourselves, but then our, um, as we're part of larger communities. And so I think Esther specifically, she um, allows me, and this is like when I would, um, nuance the heck out of this articulation before giving it to adoptees because I think there can be like questions of like does she really have agency I mean did she, she you know I, I one, one of the scholars I wrote oh I read for the paper I just wrote um renders Esther as a survivor of human trafficking and obviously with an adoption like it's horrible but there are instances where children are trafficked and so I think for me that was um, an intersection that allowed me to even begin to see how powerful it is that she does eventually come to speech because within, within the text she is silent um, and that could be and so there are like overwhelmingly interpretations that like Stan if you will like Vashti because she is like this loud and like proud woman who stands up to the king whereas um, Esther is kind of can be viewed as like this silent like girl who didn't really resist um, but it's be- I, I really I think see that as like a traumatic response a communal response because you don't hear the, the other 
girls who were part of that summoning, if you will, for the king. And so in different ways, I see um, her character arc really revealing how specifically for adopted communities, we can like participate in a cultivation of um, Christian ethics that gives us tools to begin to like act and to resist within our communities. So those are my, my two like explicit Hebrew Bible um, stories I'm wrestling with. Yeah, so good. Um, and yeah, I think that they are very unique to this because of the fact that Moses, you know, we're told that was adopted by the Egyptian court. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, um, Esther as well was adopted. And so, um, and this is why, it, you know, course you know we say it over and over again but why it's so important to have so many different people in different intersections um, reading and interpreting scripture um, so that we can pull this out and get a richer view of what even was going you know it, what is going on in the text which there's always so much going on in the text as you were talking um, about the idea of talking back I, I thought of the Canaanite woman you know she's not it, it mentioned as an adoptee of course but the idea that she talks back to Jesus. And I love that in her talking back to Jesus, you know, he says, well, you are a woman of great faith. And I love how that's in contrast to, I think it was the chapter before the chapter after um, the disciples, he's kind of, you know, they're he's having a, a conversation with the disciples or something. And he tells them, you know, you have little faith. And so he's like telling his disciples, like you have no faith. And then he tells this woman, um, you know, this woman that is, inhabiting a marginalized body who talks back to him you know he tells her like you have great faith and so I love that um, idea of talking back and I specifically you know of course want to highlight the the nuance of what it means to talk back as not just an adult excuse me, an adoptee, um, but as like you said, a Korean woman um, where maybe silence has been such a dominant part of the, the you know, narrative. Um, well, I am just so thankful for this and for all that you've shared. I just have one last question. I love how you mentioned earlier, well, actually you, you wrote this in a, uh, I think it was like a social media post. Um, and then earlier you mentioned how Christianity, you know, can be liberative and life-giving, right? Um, we believe that as Christians, um, although there is so much that we have to tease out from white supremacy and, uh, you know, white dominant narratives, but I love that you talked about how, you know, was it, I don't know if it was Easter or around this time, but that you are seeing Jesus as Asian, right? That you are envisioning and imagining Jesus as Asian. Um, can you talk to me maybe a little bit about that and just um, how you as, you know, who you are, how you see Christianity or how you engage with Christianity in a liberative and life-giving way or through a liberative and life-giving lens? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, with my post on, um, I, I think, um, the Atlanta shooting could, um, like a week out from when, when Easter hit. And I think often, I mean, I love Holy Saturday. I think it's such a beautiful, like overlooked holiday that speaks to like the liminal space mm -hmm. that many Christians like are always inhabiting of the glory but also like like the trauma if you will um and constantly flipping back and having to be like reminded of like the both and and so I think that week I was really just trying to 
um, because I needed to be reminded that like Jesus does have the ability scripturally and like textually to be like rendered in so in fashion in so many ways and that, um, you know, as a Christian, like believing myself specifically as an, like a Asian woman, um, as the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so part of like the things I've been wrestling with this entire semester, obviously the, like the Atlanta shootings had just, as you mentioned previously, um, sparked so much like national like coverage and controversy of like Christian nationalism, gender violence, the Asian bodies, specifically Asian female assigned bodies. And so I think part of my own like theological interpretation, if you will, that for me is life giving um, and important is that like, do I have a slight trigger warning? But like, like, so Jesus as like a survivor of sexual abuse because of like the crucifixion narrative as like, really traumatic if you like read it um, intensely. But um, also the fact that the scars are still like present on his body post-resurrection um, and he invites the disciples, things like Thomas, to like touch and to see like the body. So I think like not many communities, but we're continually having to expose our trauma in order to like prove that what we experience is real, is part of like being in this world that we live in, um, of like not being able to taste and see the goodness of God in its totality, but having glimpses of it. And so that was part of like my own affection on Jesus as Asian. Um, and also like, I think part of my, of what, where I sit in constantly as a Christian of why I think it Christianity can still be liberative because of what I previously just said of like, we like we're constantly living in a tension of believing, but not yet seeing, but seeing glimpses. And so arresting the fact that like we are the body of Christ and that we are given to each other and we have the potential to be bread and to be manna um, and food for the journey, if you will, like in, yeah. So that's kind of my articulation of that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, this has been so good. Um, thank you for all that you are teaching us. Um, I know that, you know, like you said, it it is very taxing and re-traumatizing in many ways to, um, yeah, talk through this and be open with this and be vulnerable. So thank you for choosing to do that um, for us and for the work that you are doing. It is um, so necessary and so important. And I'm so excited to see just how it will continue to develop. So yeah, if there's anything else you want to share, um, where can folks find you and follow you if they want to, you know, learn more about this topic and other things or just about everything else you have to share? Yeah, so um, thank you for having me on. It's been it's always good to like talk about things that I'm passionate about with other like like-minded individuals and to make connections in a virtual space because I think you know we've all been thrust into it, but some of us have been doing this for a little bit longer. But um, I think oh yes, so where people can find me? So on Instagram, both um, at the user handle like anadoptdetoxback. And also this new project that I started with a friend in seminary called Recoalition. So Re.Coalition, and it's all 
about like a fusion of like ethics and um, life-giving interpretations for um, BIPOC Christians. So that's where people can find me. We'd love to like interact and engage with you all who are listening. Um, feel free to reach out, et cetera, because I love ha- having conversations in, in the digital space. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, yeah, it was so fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.